Part Six, Chapter Three. Jude the Obscure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Part Six, Chapter Three. Sue was convalescent, though she had hoped for death, and Jude had again obtained work at his old trade. They were in other lodgings now, in the direction of Bathsheba, and not far from the Church of Ceremonies, St. Silas. They would sit silent, more bodeful of the direct antagonism of things than of their insonant and stolid obstructiveness. Vague and quaint imaginings had haunted Sue in the days when her intellect scintillated like a star, that the world resembled a stanza or melody composed in a dream. It was wonderfully excellent to the half-aroused intelligence, but hopelessly absurd at the full waking, that the first cause worked automatically like a somnambulist, and not reflectively like a sage that at the flaming of the terrestrial conditions there seemed never to have been contemplated such a development of emotional perceptiveness among the creatures subject to those conditions as that reached by thinking and educated humanity. But affliction makes opposing forces loom anthropomorphous, and those ideas were now exchanged for a sense of Jude and herself fleeing from a persecutor. We must conform, she said mournfully. All the ancient wrath of the power above us has been vented upon us. These poor creatures, and we must submit. There is no choice. We must. It is no use fighting against God. It is only against man and senseless circumstance, said Jude. True, she murmured. What have I been thinking of? I am getting as superstitious as a savage but whoever or whatever our foe may be, I am cowed into submission. I have no more fighting strength left, no more enterprise. I am beaten, beaten. We are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. I am always saying that now. I feel the same. What shall we do? You are in work now, but remember, it may only be because our history and relations are not absolutely known. Possibly, if they knew our marriage had not been formalised, they would turn you out of your job, as they did at Albricum. I hardly know. Perhaps they would hardly do that. However, I think that we ought to make it legal now, as soon as you are able to go out. You think we ought? Certainly and Jude fell into thought. I have seemed to myself lately, he said, to belong to that vast band of men shunned by the virtuous, the men called seducers. It amazes me when I think of it. I have not been conscious of it, or of any wrongdoings towards you, whom I love more than myself. Yet I am one of those men. I wonder if any other of them are the same pure-blind simple creatures as I. Yes, Sue, that's what I am. I seduced you. You were a distinct type, a refined creature, 
intended by nature to be left intact. But I couldn't leave you alone. No, no, Jude, she said quickly. Don't reproach yourself with being what you are not. If anybody is to blame, it is I. I supported you in your resolve to leave Phillotson, and without me, perhaps, you wouldn't have urged him to let you go. I should have, just the same. As to ourselves, the fact of our not having entered into a legal contract is the saving feature in our union. We have thereby avoided insulting, as it were, the solemnity of our first marriages. Solemnity, Jude looked at her with some surprise, and grew conscious that she was not the Sue of their earlier time. Yes, she said, with a little quiver in her words. I have had dreadful fears, a dreadful sense of my own insolence of action. I have thought that I am still his wife. Whose? Richard's. Good God, dearest, why? Oh, I can't explain. Only the thought comes to me. It is your weakness, a sick fancy, without reason or meaning. Don't let it trouble you. Sue sighed uneasily. As a set-off against such discussions as these, there had come an improvement in their pecuniary position, which earlier in their experience would have made them cheerful. Jude had quite unexpectedly found good employment at his old trade almost directly he arrived, the summer weather suiting his fragile constitution, and outwardly his days went on with the monotonous uniformity which is in itself so grateful after vicissitude. People seemed to have forgotten that he had ever shown any awkward abernacies, and he daily mounted to the parapets and copings of colleges he could never enter, and renewed the crumbling freestones of mullion windows he would never look from, as if he had known no wish to do otherwise. There was this change in him, that he did not often go to any service at the churches now. One thing troubled him more than any other, that Sue and himself had mentally travelled in opposite directions since the tragedy events which had enlarged his own views of life. Laws, customs, and dogmas had not operated in the same manner on Sue's. She was no longer the same as in the independent days, when her intellect played like lambent lightning over conventions and formalities, which he, at that time, respected, though he did not now. On a particular Sunday evening he came in rather late. She was not home, but she soon returned, when he found her silent and meditative. What are you thinking of, little woman? he asked curiously. Oh, I can't tell clearly. I have thought that we have been selfish, careless, even impious, in our courses, you and I. Our life has been a vain attempt at self-delight self-abnegation is the higher road. We should mortify the flesh, the terrible flesh, the curse of Adam. Sue, he murmured, what has come over you? We ought to be continually sacrificing ourselves on the altar of duty. But I have always driven to do what has pleased me. I well deserve the scourging I have got. I wish something would take the evil right out of me 
and all my monstrous errors, and all my sinful ways. Sue, my own too suffering dear, there's no evil woman in you. Your natural instincts are perfectly healthy, not quite so impassioned, perhaps, as I could wish, but good, and dear, and pure. And as I have often said, you are absolutely the most ethereal, least sensual woman I ever knew to exist without inhuman sexlessness. Why do you talk in such a changed way? We have not been selfish, except when no one could profit by our being otherwise. You used to say that human nature was noble and long-suffering, not vile and corrupt, and at last I thought you spoke truly, and now you seem to take such a much lower view. I want a humble heart and a chastened mind, and I have never had them yet. You have been fearless, both as a thinker and as a feeler, and you deserve more admiration than I gave. I was too full of narrow dogmas at that time to see it. Don't say that, Jude. I wish my every fearless word and thought could be rooted out of my history. Self-renunciation, that's everything. I cannot humiliate myself too much. I should like to prick myself all over with pins and bleed out the badness that's in me. Hush, he said, pressing her little face against his breast, as if she were an infant. It is bereavement that has brought you to this. Such remorse is not for you, my sensitive plant, but for the wicked ones of the earth, who never feel it. I ought not to stay like this, she murmured, when she had remained in the position a long while. Why not? It is indulgence. Still, on the same tack, but is there anything better on earth than that we should love one another? Yes, it depends on the sort of love, and yours, ours, is the wrong. I won't have it, Sue. Come, when do you wish our marriage to be signed in a vestry? She paused and looked up uneasily. Never, she whispered. Not knowing the whole of her meaning, he took the objection serenely and said nothing. Several minutes elapsed, and he thought she had fallen asleep, but he spoke softly, and found that she was wide awake all the time. She sat upright and sighed. There is a strange, indescribable perfume or atmosphere about you tonight, Sue, he said. I mean not only mentally, but about your clothes also, a sort of vegetable scent which I seem to know yet cannot remember. It is incense. Incense? I have been to the service at St. Silas, and I was in the fumes of it. Oh, St. Silas. Yes, I go there sometimes. Indeed, you go there. You see, Jude, it is only here in the weekday mornings when you are at work, and I think and think of, of my... She stopped till she could control the lumpness of her throat. And I have taken to go in there, as it is so near. Oh, well, of course, I say nothing against it, only it is odd, for you. They little think what sort of child is among them. What do you mean, Jude? Well, a sceptic, to be plain. How can you pain me so, dear Jude, in my trouble? Yet I know you didn't mean it, but you ought not to say that. 
but I am much surprised. Well, I want to tell you something else, Jude. You won't be angry, will you? I have thought of it a good deal since my babies died. I don't think I ought to be your wife, or as your wife, any longer. What? But you are. From your point of view, but, of course, we were afraid of the ceremony, and a good many others would have been in our places, with such strong reasons for fears. But experience has proved how we misjudged ourselves and overrated our infirmities. And if you are beginning to respect rites and ceremonies, as you seem to be, I wonder you don't say it shall be carried out instantly. You certainly are my wife, Sue, in all but law. What do you mean by what you said? I don't think I am. Not? But suppose we had gone through the ceremony. Would you feel that you were then? No, I should not feel even then that I was. I should feel worse than I do now. Why so? In the name of all that's perverse, my dear. Because I am Richard's. Ah, you hinted that absurd fancy to me before. It was only an impression with me then. I feel more and more convinced as time goes on that I belong to him or to nobody. My good heavens, how are we changing places? Yes, perhaps so. Some few days later, in the dusk of the summer evening, they were sitting in the same small room downstairs when a knock came to the front door of the carpenter's house where they were lodging and in a few moments there was a tap at the door of their room. Before they could open it, the comer did so, and a woman's form appeared. Is Mr. Forley here? Jude and Sue started as he mechanically replied to the affirmative, for the voice was Arabella's. He formally requested her to come in, and she sat down in the window bench, where they could distinctly see her outline against the light but no characteristic that enabled them to estimate her general aspect and air. Yet something seemed to denote that she was not quite so comfortably circumstanced, nor so bouncingly attired as she had been during Cartlett's lifetime. The three attempted an awkward conversation about the tragedy, of which Jude had felt it to be his duty to inform her immediately though she had never replied to his letter. I have just come from the cemetery, she said. I inquired and found the child's grave. I couldn't come to the funeral. Thank you for inviting me all the same. I read all about it in the papers, and I felt I wasn't wanted. No, I couldn't come to the funeral, repeated Arabelle, who, seeming utterly unable to reach the ideal of a catastrophic manner, fumbled with iterations, but I am glad I found the grave. As tis your trade, Jude, you'll be able to put up a handsome stone to em. I shall put up a headstone, said Jude drearily. He was my child, and naturally I feel for him. I hope so, we all did. The others that weren't mine I didn't feel so much for, as was natural. Of course, a sigh came from the dark corner where Sue sat. I had often wished I had mine with me, continued Mrs. Cartlett. Perhaps twouldn't have happened then. 
but of course I didn't wish to take him away from your wife. I am not his wife, came from Sue. The unexpectedness of her words struck Jude silent. Oh, I beg your pardon, I'm sure, said Arabella. I thought you were. Jude had known from the quality of Sue's tone that her new and transcendental views lurked in her words. But all except their obvious meaning was, naturally, missed by Arabella. The latter, after convincing that she was struck by Sue's avowal, recovered herself and went on to talk with placid bluntness about her boy, for whom, though in his lifetime she had shown no care at all, she now exhibited a ceremonial mournfulness that was apparently sustaining to the conscience. She alluded to the past, and in making some remark appealed again to Sue. There was no answer. Sue had invisibly left the room. She said she was not your wife, resumed Arabella in another voice. Why should she do that? I cannot inform you, said Jude shortly. She is, isn't she? She once told me so. I don't criticise what she says. Ah, I see. Well, my time is up. I am staying here tonight and thought I could do no less than call. After our mutual affliction, I am sleeping at the place where I used to be barmaid, and tomorrow I go back to Alfredston. Father has come home again, and I am living with him.